Hello everybody and welcome to the very first edition of Two Brad For You In Conversation. Very excited about this and our first guest is Mr. Jay Ingram, well-known science broadcaster back home in Canada. He's been on the radio, uh, the TV since about the 1980s. Uh, he's written many books. He does lots of live science communication events, plays in a band. He's a big part of the Beakerhead Science Festival. We got into that a little bit. I first met him at the Beakerhead Science Communication course. Um, and I'm very uh, thankful that he agreed to do this. He allowed me to come over to the, to the house, set up, and we had a great chat. We talked about science communication, some of the current struggles in this pursuit. We talked about, of course, the Beakerhead Festival. We got into some Alzheimer's and aging topics, and we even touched on Bigfoot at the end. So once again, thank you very much, Jay, for having me over. I really enjoyed it. I hope you too enjoy it. And as always, we have the Freak Motif playing us in. They have a new album called Hot Plate. It's available now. Check out all of their stuff at frkmtf.com. Many thanks to the Freaks. I'll let them take it away, and then it's on to my conversation with Mr. Jay Ingram. time I'm trying it. So we'll see how it goes. I have John Gilliard lined up next week to do one as well. You remember John, my PhD supervisor, parasitologist at UFC? Yeah, I follow him on Twitter. Yeah, he's pretty active too. he, He usually, it seems to me, he retweets pictures of idyllic English landscapes. Usually with a sheep or two involved. Exactly. You know, it's a signature kind of tweet. I love those. They, you practically know, you see the image and you know it's him before you've even read his name. Yeah, yeah, say, yeah. Oh, that Dorset sheep or whatever it yeah. is. I mean, okay. Beautiful, what could be better? You know, a bit of fog coming over the hills. And it's, uh, that's an area of Europe that I haven't gone to yet. He's from northern yeah. UK, so I haven't yeah. been there yet, but I'd like to go. But let me just say again, thanks for having me in your house. Sure. I know we're no expecting problem. it's under renovation right now. So we're expecting maybe some some bumps and crashes, but Yeah, nothing yet, so I think we're okay. Yeah, so sounds good. Um and yeah, I mean it, I have some audience in Canada, I know that, you know, however small it is. So they're probably familiar with you know who you are. Um but are for my limited audience in Europe, I don't think that they would know they won't Jay have Ingram. A clue who I am? Well, they might. They might. I mean, you were, uh, you know, anyone growing up in Canada when I grew up, you know, in the '90s, knows Jay Ingram from radio, from TV. You've authored several books. You now do live shows, music. You've done it all, really. Well, so, no, well but why you don't ne- you? You never feel like that, though, right? Yeah. I, I mean, for instance. I'm not even on Instagram yet, and I, I think 
you're missing that's out. That's a flaw. You know, I think I should be. Um, so I don't know. I'm on the verge. And I also have to think, do you know, do I really need that? Like at some point you, you do become old fashioned, right? And you, you, yeah. you want to, um, like for instance, it, it's all about how you want to source the information. If I see a news report that is in both video and print form, mm -hmm. I will never watch the video. <laughs> no, that's backwards, I think, to where younger audiences are today. But I, I feel I can get through the print version fa much faster. Oh, definitely. And pick out what's relevant. And I don't need, I mean, if I'm curious to see what the person looks like, that's one thing. Yeah. But if I really, if it's a politician I'm already familiar with, just read it. What's the point? And actually, this came up uh, last year. I was at the Association of British Science Writers, um, you know, summer journalism school or whatever. Uh, and this topic came up and I think they had some metrics. I'm not sure where they got it, but they said actually a lot of people are still reading. Most people still consume it in print and they figure it is because like you said, you can kind of go at your own speed and pick out the relevant information. If it's a video and you already know the intro, you can't just skip ahead a paragraph no, and find you're where trapped, you're going. You're it, trapped by it. Exactly. So it was this idea of like time, right? Like time, I think, is still a constraint for people when they're consuming these kind of things. But you know what I, I've always sort of wanted is, uh, let's say, an online newspaper that uh, when you click on it, when you see a headline, there's different ways of viewing it, like the five line version of the event, the 25 line, the, you know, the longer read, the longer read. And you just click on, I mean, maybe somebody does that, but for each topic you have that, mm -hmm. even if it's the origi originally the long piece that you just edit down. But then I could read exactly how much I want to read for any story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to, story A, I don't want to read it all. I only want to know, okay, it's that fact. Yeah. Another guy got shot, Yeah. you know, um, but others require more. Yeah, so... I was going to say, why don't you give, if you don't mind, give just a little brief of your career, where you started. Oh, okay. Um, just for, again, for my friends in Europe that are listening. Sure. So um, I was in Toronto and uh, I started teaching at a school called Ryerson. It's now a university. It was a college, but it had a radio. St I started teaching biology and chemistry. Uh, but it had a radio station, a professional radio station, not a campus station, but a, a sort of separate entity that was related. And they did educational radio, so I started doing that. And then I did a biology course on the radio. And then I started freelancing for the CBC. This is all radio. Yeah. Um, and then I started hosting the National Science CBC radio program. Quirks, Quirks and Quirks. And Quirks yeah. In 1979. Uh did that through the 1980s, started writing books in the late 80s, and then eventually got to Discovery Channel and hosted the national show Daily Planet there for 16 years. Now it's been canceled. I saw that. Yeah. So, um, you know, nobody, it, uh, it, it bothered me because I understand the decision, mm -hmm. but the decision is not motivated by what's your best show or what's the most uh, creative way to present science or anything like that, it's motivated by money. You know, if you've got a lot of people working in your office, you're costing a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, if uh, you use resources heavily because you're putting together a show literally day by day, that costs money. Um, 
you need to fix your bottom line, what's the easiest thing to look? That show is really expensive. Right. Let's just ax it, so, which is what they did. So do you think it's, yeah, I don't know. I was sad to see it go, obviously. And I remember, I mean, it was kind of the first of its kind, right? A daily science the news only, show. The only of its kind. The only of I its mean, kind. I it mean, was, it was unique when we started it back in 1995. And we knew that nobody else was doing a daily, pretty much prime time, like seven in the evening Eastern time. Yeah. Uh, hourly science show, five days a week. And, you know, the first ones were, uh, anybody who lived in Canada then might remember the show was called At Discovery Canada, not Daily Planet. Um, anyway, uh, we did a lot of that uh, kind of, it was kind of guesswork a lot of the time, but that's... Yeah. Figuring it out. But it, uh, yeah, so that's how it started. So I've, you know, basically write it. I have written, done radio, done TV. Uh, but there are lots of things I haven't done, so. Yeah, so where do you see, this is like, you know, with Daily Planet leaving. So is it, and I mean, you just explained it's sort of a bottom line decision. But I'm curious, as I sort of start a career in this science, communication, science broadcast, where do you see it going? Is there, uh, is TV, you know, like, I mean, everyone keeps talking about how TV's dead or print is going to be the next thing that goes out. I mean, what are the... Yeah, I don't see anything going out. Um, you know, commercial TV is hurting right now because of the shift of ad dollars to the internet. Yeah. Um, that fact underlies a lot of programming decisions. Uh, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Right? It's not the CBC. Uh, you don't get government funding. Um you live and die by advertising. Um, but I don't think TV will disappear. I mean, it, what the things on TV that really attract people, like for instance, the NFL has been huge on TV, but um, their latest numbers in terms of both TV, I think, and attendance are slipping. Hmm. You know, and this was the, the NFL is like the, the untouchable, the organization of a sport. Anyway. So I don't know. I mean, you're starting, you're doing these podcasts and you're writing stuff. So those are pretty, that's like radio and that's writing. That's kind been of mainstay. around for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there will be other opportunities. You know, I, I really do know of people in their early, early 20s, like 22, 23, who as social media people are better than anybody else. In terms of science? Just in terms of, well, not, not even specifically science, but the example I know is working in a science sort of related field. Right. It's just that there's a way of doing social media. There's a uh, being punctual, being often, being surprising, being, you know, everything that mm -hmm. goes into making that something that will catch your attention. 22 years old and can do it better than most people i want i i wonder this is something that i'm you know again as i enter into this world and you hear all the time social media you got to be you know that's where you sort of build your you can build, sell your brand anyway it's a great place to get your stuff yeah. out there and i know that i don't do it well enough um but it seems like a lot of energy like to always be on you know to always be you know the next thing or the next. i even on traveling, I, I hate bringing a camera. I don't like taking pictures because it's, you know, it's, it ruins the moment for me. So I can't like the idea of 
always having the the Instagram or whatever it is ready to be like, hey, check out what we're doing now, what we're doing now seems exhausting to me, but I, I, I see what you're saying. But Well, you're going to have to... Um, I, I don't know whether you make these choices implicitly or explicitly. I, you know, I don't remember ever looking 10 years ahead in my career and thinking, this is what I want to be doing. I was just happy doing what I was doing. Right. And, um, you know, it was always nice to have some kind of financial security, but, you know, never re- had mostly one-year contracts throughout my career. So yeah. uh, I got to live with that. I mean, but you've... So I don't know whether you decide what your best way of communicating science is. Obviously, that that sort of would change with time. But um, if you're, you know, if you're naturally not inclined to bring a camera, I think that says something about you that should be incorporated in how you, if you're going to plan your career, yeah. you should take that into account. I actually don't like doing that stuff. Yeah. And um, there would be people that would. And uh, they'll go in a different direction. Yeah. It does seem, you know, there's, you get a lot of doom and gloom sentiment when you talk about, you know, young writers and they're all like, well, there's all these publications are closing and stuff. But it does seem like there is a lot more latitude for that kind of thing to really make your own uh, thing, you know, whether it's on the internet or podcasts or, or through your writing That's or something. Right. There's a lot more space to do that. Um, the other question or the other thought I have that I would like to put to you about uh, science, communication, science, journalism, is do you think that it is, you know, it's changing, obviously, um, but is it as important or more important now? You know, you've in the current, we'll say, testy climate that we seem to find ourselves yeah. in in the media and even in, I mean, I never thought I'd say it, but creeping into personal relationships. So I wonder if you think like this, you know, we need, you know, science literacy, science advocacy is sorely lacking, or is it sort of at where it's always been, but these other factors are maybe kind of exacerbating it for people like you, people like me that, who do science as a career? Um, I'm not sure that um, it's going to change significantly because of the current sort of antagonism to fact and evidence. (laughs) Uh, You know, I, I think it's serious. And um, I think that uh, science communicators have to think really hard about how best to get those ideas across. Um, So you have to fight back against that antagonism. But how do you do that best? That's a great... I mean, that. well, that is the question. You know, there was just an online publication today um, showing once again that... Uh, let me back up. Uh, scientific literacy is a, is a thing. Mm-hmm. It's been measured and quantified. And um, there's a guy um, in the States that's done a lot of science literacy surveys. And, um, you know, generally it shows that uh, less than half the population really know anything about science. Now, how little that is, is sort of up for debate. I've always thought 10 or 15%, like 10 or the, the standard thing used to be 10% of the population can understand a science article in the New York times. Okay. So 10% isn't all that great. 
I mean, the New York Times is good. The writing's good and everything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not low level. Yeah. It's high level, but it's high level journalism and yeah. 10% of the public. But that's science's problem, not the New York Times. Right. Uh, so this idea of literacy anyway took hold. If we could only, this was one of the main parts of this, if we could only improve the public's scientific literacy, get them to know more science, one of the main effects will be that um, political issues that have scientific implications will be decided better because mm-hmm. there's going to be an input of science into them. You can say what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you'll, there'll be a, more people will be able, will be evidence oriented. Right. Um, so that's been proven to be like 100% wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, if uh, there was this classic uh, study done where when the Tea Party was a big thing in the U.S., so, right. you know, really right-wing yeah. uh, individualists. Um, so they surveyed um, a group of Tea Party adherents, some of whom were tested and shown to be scientifically illiterate, mm-hmm. and some who were literate. I forget what the <clears throat> you know what the threshold was. Yeah, right. Then they were given, so they, they were asked opinions on typical things like climate change. Is it human-induced? And you, the answers you get are pretty negative, right? But then they show them some evidence um, that, uh, as I recall, sort of suggested that climate change was real. And then they came back and... Um, I hope I have this right. I do know that when they came back and, and resurveyed them, the scientifically literate ones were even more opposed to the idea of human-induced climate so change. So they dug into their position because they, yeah, they have a, they have some scientific understanding, but they deploy it to back up their argument, which they've already decided right, right on some no evidence or bogus evidence and there was yet another replication of that today so the idea that if we make the society scientifically literate it's sort of going to go science's way is ridiculous it doesn't work and this is our we've had this conversation before uh and it's that it was shocking to me and i think when you when you say that story those facts that you just laid out to scientists is even more shocking it's almost like they can't comprehend that you know, and I think this is where the, a lot of the frustration comes with, because it's like, well, if you can't use facts and sort of evidence to make decisions or convince people of something, well, what what can you do? Like, what is the thing? And then this brings up the you know thoughts in my is in my head of just well, is that should this be the goal of science media? Is just to constantly be fact-checking people, debunking things. I feel like it's not working, obviously, and it becomes antagonistic to the people who you're trying to convince, you know, like, and this is the hardening of positions, and yeah, it just seems like a whole cluster, well, you know what, but I'm not sure, so I don't know if you have any ideas as to what you then do, well, but... Um, I think that um, it's probably true that whatever has been tried hasn't really worked, um, it depends, you know, I, I don't think the fact that a, a group of people might be from the beginning, uh, opposed to the idea of anthropogenic climate change doesn't mean that they will always have that opinion. What right. it does mean though, 
is that it's an opinion not based on the scientific fact. It's almost an attitude. And I should point out that uh, both ends of the political spectrum are subject to that. Oh, of course, yeah. So all of us, really, I mean, unless we're in the middle somewhere, yeah. are really held prisoner by attitudes and positions that don't necessarily correlate with what's known. Yeah. You know, well, and unless you're really careful about che like really putting the effort in to examine your own position, which is very hard to do. Yeah, I, I wouldn't depend on people doing that. What I think has to happen, though, is that when scientists want to address a subject with the general public, um, the first thing they have to think about is who are they? Mm -hmm. Like, Who is the audience? Who's going to read this? What do I know about what they know? If I harangue them, are they going to respond? There's a question that isn't asked often enough, right? Because mm -hmm. it doesn't work. You have to, somehow you have, to, a way has to be figured out. Different ways have to be figured out. There are diverse audiences out there. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to, if you're trying to be strategic or about your message, then, you know, there are people that will probably tell you who your ideal audience is. But whether you as a podcaster, you know, I think the creative sort of avenue is the way to go. Not so much thinking about, this is going back to a previous conversation, not so much thinking about where the opportunities are exactly, although you do have to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. But starting uh, from the question, what do I really want to do? Instead of, where can I get a job? Right. And somewhere in between that is everybody's, everybody has a different comfort zone. Right. But anyway, getting back to this idea, um, how do you persuade an audience? Well, and even if that should be the goal. Well, even if it, and if it isn't, maybe things would go a lot better. Yeah. I mean, if you, obviously right there, if you're somehow typecast as a climate scientist uh, going into, you know, some uh, Republican state, rural, uh, I think the first thing you should be thinking about is how you're going to approach this. Yeah. Well, and should I even be here? Well, that's another question, right? I guess, <clears> and, <throat> that, and that one speaks should more I, to like what your motivation is, how passionate you are about the issue and things like that. But Yeah, and you know, I mean, it's as science writing and broadcasting is as varied as nonfiction of any kind or fiction mm -hmm. you know there's many many different approaches lots of great writers and tv people and so on um but you know uh, these issues like you know the anti-vaccine movement you know how best um how do you address uh, where do those concerns come from that's yeah. that's really the question where how did the where did they come from? They surely can't all have come from Wakefield's stuff right. in the Lancet. Just the concerns of the anti-vaxxers. What's their motivation behind? Yeah, and just, yeah. And then it's, it's hard to remind oneself that uh, whatever applies to one end of the political spectrum applies to the other as well, pretty exactly. much. Exactly, yeah. So um, uh, people who would see themselves to the left of center uh, might want to re-examine where why they hold certain beliefs and you know there's issues there are really interesting issues around this gmos mm -hmm. you know as far as i know all the evidence is that gmos have no effect on human health 
That's well, from what uh, I can tell too. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, we're consuming them all the time, and uh, and yet at the same time, there's big opposition in Europe and huge, yeah. and uh, in North America there's opposition, but there's also a marketing opportunity mm-hmm. if you label your cereal GMO free. Yeah. That, natural organic uh, pick a word knowing what i know about its impact on human health i'm reluctant to buy such a product mm-hmm. uh, but um you know it's hard to know because uh, there is another aspect to it which is you know the overplanting of areas with uh, gmo what crop whatever it is and crowding out milkweed and reducing the uh, available a crop from monarch butterflies migrating yeah exactly monoculture so but to be honest have i caught up with that no so i'm what i just said to you is based on like four years ago or something which is not very responsible on my part (laughs) i like this thought though of like understanding what the people's motivation is because i mean i've been like i said some it seems even in personal relationships a lot of these conversations are coming up and getting contentious and i've been speaking with friends about how to have conversations without them ending in shouting matches and stuff and you know this is like a no-brainer sort of statement I didn't you know I'm not claiming to be profound or anything but there usually is more common ground between people I feel than there is not and so understanding a per the other side's motivation for an issue um, I think is a is a good way to have the conversation rather than trying to do this, well, I'm going to prove you wrong with this, and I'm going to prove you wrong with this. For climate change, for example, I feel like people that I've spoken to that are staunchly opposed to it, when it comes down to it, they're worried about jobs, especially here in Alberta, you know, like where oil sands are huge. They're worried about jobs. They're worried about, you know, getting this pipeline or whatever it is built so that we can have jobs for the future. And so if you shift the conversation to, okay, well, now we have a common thing because I'm worried about jobs too. You know, I don't want to see anyone go homeless. I don't want to see, you know, a recession or whatever it may be. But now we can have a productive conversation on what the best way to plan the economy of our little area is rather than is this real, is it not real? And in doing so, hopefully you can, you know, come to a point that you know, it doesn't matter if your job is in oil or renewable energy. If you have a job, you'll be happy, you'll be fine. You know, there's obviously still going to be issues, you know, changing people over and stuff. But finding that common ground, I think, is really important. And I haven't thought about it in terms of anti-vaxxers because I don't, you know, they obviously, their common ground would be you want your children to be safe. Just turns out that what they're doing is doing the exact opposite for their children and other people's children. But so I wonder if like this is, but then how do you go, you know, in a mass media sort of sense, have a discussion, a nuanced discussion like that? You almost have to go to every single person and, and have like a one-on-one and try and calm, calmly find this ground, you know? No, it's a good question because let's say you did want to address that subject. Uh, right now, it, it strikes me that medical writers and whether they're actual doctors or medical writers are emphasizing the downside, the hazards that are happening, you know, measles outbreaks and whooping cough. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's absurd, really. Yeah. And, uh, but instead of railing against that, acknowledge that, yes, I think that view is absurd and dangerous Mm -hmm. to others. 
um, how do I deal with this? You know, rather than kind of leaping ahead and deciding, oh, we're going to do a TV ad. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm, I'm saying most company, good companies would do this anyway. The first thing you do is figure out who would that reach. Right. So if, if people are interested in, um, there's a, a woman named Catherine Hayhoe who's uh, achieved some fame I, a few years ago, I think, because she wrote a book about how to uh, talk to fundamentalist uh, religious people about climate change. But I heard her speak uh, <clears throat> at TELUS Spark here in Calgary, and she recounted this story where she went and met with officials in Chicago. This is all about climate change, right? But how do you approach the head of the fire department, uh, the police chief, the roads guy, et cetera, et cetera? How, how do you communicate the idea of climate change to them? So she just asks them, what have you seen in the last few years in your job? Well, the road guy says a lot more potholes. Yeah. Um, the, um, you know, the guys that lay pipes say the ground is softer. They can start earlier in the year. And through doing this, she makes them aware. Then she, she, well, I wasn't there, but as she told it, then she kind of shows them how these things are consistent with climate change. But she doesn't hit them over the head right off the top with climate change. Right. She asks them to talk about their situation. Yeah. See, that's really, really smart. I think that's, it's, it's something that I, I hit on with a, a colleague in Germany, Toby, if you happen to listen to this, but he's um, a therapist, training to be a therapist. And he was telling, describing to me, I was just asking him because I was interested in how that all works. Um, and he was saying, well, we do what we call the Columbo method, which is from the old TV show Columbo, but it's just asking questions. It's exactly what you were just describing. He used an example of someone who, say, um, convinced that the FBI is following him and this guy is standing outside of his house watching him all the time. And, you know, he, and you just start with questions. Well, why might the FBI be following you? Like, what, what do you think you did? Why do you think they're doing this? And then they have to sort of think about it and give a reason. Well, what do you think? Could you come up with maybe another reason why a guy might be standing outside your house? oh yeah, well, you know, maybe he's waiting for a friend or maybe his car broke down or something. And in doing this, you guide them to the realization that, hey, maybe it's not what I've built in my head. And it's the same kind of idea of, and I I kind of crudely put it as like, if you give people enough rope, they'll hang themselves with it, you know? (laughs) But it's, if you ask the question and question the motivation, why do you think that? Like, what makes you think that? Or what, you know, might there be an alternative? And again, it's like, how do you then, you can't have this conversation with every single person. And the well, method that she was just talking to, like that would be exhausting to go to every single person and be like, what yeah. have you seen? So one thing, let's say that on a spectrum of belief and disbelief in climate change, um, 10% are implacably opposed to the idea, 10% are rabidly in favor at opposite ends. So, but there's still 80% in the middle. Right. And those are people who are more likely to have their mind be open-minded, put it that way, mm-hmm. be open to change right. if change is necessary. Yeah, and so maybe, maybe the strategy is not to worry too much about the skeptic, call them skeptics. Yeah, or the fringes, right? I mean, like... Yeah, but the fringe gets defined by whomever wants to call it, you know. <laughs> it's so true. So I'd be a little bit careful about that. I mean... 
I don't know where the fringe regarding naturopaths would stand, but I think some are probably legit. I don't know the field that well. Mm -hmm. And I think some maybe overdo it. Yeah. Um, but MDs, I would I, I don't know how many MDs would call naturopaths the fringe. Yeah. Or quacks or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And I mean, they're, they can be equally as hardened into their, um, positions as well of, you know, any natural path is, is bogus. It's all, you know, whatever. But even though, I mean, there is, I'm, and I don't know the field that well either, but I would be willing to bet that some of the, you know, herbal methods that a natural path might, you know, prescribe would have some basis in the fact that people have used them for a long time and they probably do something. Maybe it's not the most uh, efficient way to treat something, but I don't know. I just, I don't think it's all quackery, but I don't know. And yeah, what's the point in, in, yeah, I don't know. We could talk about homeopathy too. Well, I think uh, that one's been proven to be quite, yeah. uh, I I guess the, the, the train of thought that I'm thinking is that people, you know, people that would, you know, let's say the, we're talking about the motivations for people believing in a certain thing. So for naturopaths, why would someone go to a naturopath? A lot of the stuff that I hear is because, well, big pharma, this, you know, over medication, they're just jamming pills down their throat, which is probably true. true. Yeah, exactly. But does that mean that you, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater and get rid of the whole, um, you know, medicine, scientifically proven medicine thing and jump all the way to this, this other thing? Obviously it's somewhere in the middle, but again, how do you have that nuanced, nuanced conversation? Well, you know, in the end, it may be all political and not scientific. I mean, you know, the fact that you can show that uh, whether people accept an idea or not is governed largely by attitudes that they already have, which are pretty unlikely to be swayed by new evidence. They hold on to them pretty well. Uh, I think understanding that is um, really taking that to heart, Mm -hmm. uh, I think is critical. But um, I also think that other issues will arise. And I think we've seen from that fact that you can have this kind of attitudinal approach to science. We already see how it's uh, being exploited in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and how scientists in this country were muzzled by a previous government. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we're at an important point, I think, where um, we have to look for opportunities to communicate science. Yeah. Well, and another discussion that has come up in some of the meetings that I've attended, um, the British Science Writers Association, um, is, is science journalism too easy on science? Has it become just a cheerleader for science? And again, I, I could see how in the face of antagonism towards science, you want to be like, no, look at this. It's good. It's great. But there's not a lot of critical pieces of the science yeah but this has been an issue for a long time um so i can remember in the 1980s when i was at quirks and quarks that that was something we had to think about you know were we being a little bit were we being unnecessarily approving Mm -hmm. of stuff that went on in science and um i don't think we were actually i think when we decided to take a topic on seriously it would it could go in either direction yeah and um 
you know, on the other hand, I think we had an attitude like everybody does. But anyway, this idea that, um, um, you know, that uh, we have to worry about that. I'm, I think it's always been that way. Yeah. Um, it's pretty obvious that some magazines will tilt more toward being cheerleaders than others. Mm-hmm. You just have to choose your magazine. You know, there's no point. There's no point um, being resentful that some magazine A is being published because you hate it. Yeah. Just ignore it. Yeah. That, that's the best thing. So if it's full of um, mystical medical advice, only if somebody like Doctor Oz gets, starts to get involved, then should you get heated. Yeah. Because he's an actual doctor. Yeah. Purveying junk on tv yeah and but so i think that's worth protesting yeah and especially people with such a, a large platform and with the health stuff i mean i guess with all of these issues climate change too it's something that affects everybody whether you see that or not you know the vaccine thing whatever so i understand people you know getting uppity but yeah <clears throat> we, did, just, we did a story on daily planet with dr oz back before he was famous he was sort of locally famous somewhere and uh, he agreed. We did a series on um, sort of psychic things, and one of which, I think we did an ESP one, but one of which was therapeutic touch. Mm-hmm. And so he supervised, he supervised an experiment where there was a surgical patient, and you know how the blood gets circulated, and <clears throat> there's a kind of a bag mm-hmm. where the, the blood uh, level stays the same, and it's a constantly being fed to the patient. So they had a nurse put her so imagine a sort of flat bag full of blood yeah and a nurse put her hands close to but not touching it right and i think thought good thoughts or something yeah putting the energy into the yeah putting the energy into the blood and dr oz supervised that we did it as a a serious uh thing didn't seem to have much effect unfortunately right yeah anyway hmm interesting yeah i don't know these are all topics that seem like I don't again I don't know if it's like some of them have been bandied about forever but others not so much but one thing that I'd like to touch on because if we're thinking about new ways of doing science communication is the Beakerhead Festival which you are a part of uh I'm not sure found co-founder or yeah technically technically but you (laughs) you you're involved with it yeah and i'll let you explain what it is because honestly i have not seen anything else like it um and i've mentioned it to science communication colleagues in europe as an example of something that's different something that's new Uh, so i'll let you explain it and we can talk about the experiences and what you think the engagement level is and how it's going and well without knowing exactly what people have already experienced in terms of science centers or science fairs. Uh, Beakerhead actually is a year-round organization involved in schools and other things, but the primary piece is a five-day extravaganza in September, uh, where, which is, a, we like to call it a mashup of art, science, and engineering. There's a, heavy, a lot of engineers here in the city of Calgary. There are a lot of artists. And from the beginning, we thought bringing those two unlike sorts of people together might help create uh, interesting installations or sculptures or exercise or workshops or demos that you might not otherwise see. And just as a result of that, um, 
be a good piece of science communication, give people a sense in a highly interactive way uh, of what science is all about. But the goal is not to teach people science. Mm -hmm. The goal is to delight people. Right, entertain. And then if people are delighted, they'll stick around, they'll tell others, they'll come back. And it's a much less directed <clears throat> version of science communication. But I think our numbers, we've only been around for five years. I think our numbers show that we're doing something right. I mean, last year we had, you know, pushing 150,000 people over five days. So that's pretty significant. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a curious mix of art and science. That's all I can say. So, um, hardcore people might look at it and say, well, what are you actually learning there? Mm -hmm. And we would say, maybe they're not learning anything you think they should learn. Yeah. Who but cares? they're learning something. Yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, getting a feel for the fact that science and technology has an entertainment component mm -hmm. and really can be fabulous. Yeah. And what you're really doing is bringing together thousands of people with who, whose minds you share a little piece of I love science as entertainment. Yeah. And we just think that's the right way to go. Yeah. And it, it, it makes a lot of sense. I like this idea of, you know, not explicitly being out to teach, you know, or that, that a science communication thing doesn't have to explicitly be about you're walking away with no. this knowledge. No, but I think, I think a good portion of it should be. I'm not saying that uh, everything should be Beakerhead. I'm just saying that we feel <clears throat> this is a bit of a space that very few people operated in, even science centers. I think you could easily see them as places where you go to learn science. Definitely. Now, they, they take great pains to be interactive and for kids to have fun. And often that works, mm -hmm. sometimes in the most surprising ways. Sometimes the simplest things are the best. <clears throat> but st you're still trying to get a point across. We're not really trying to get a point across with Beakerhead. Yeah. We're just trying to create a positive atmosphere. And I mean, I've, I attended one year before I, I moved to Germany and it was great. And I, every time I come, I tend to come home for my yearly visits around this time. It is September now. Um, and there's a, there's excitement about it. I mean, amongst people that I know, people talk about it. Um, it seems to get bigger every time and it's, it is a spectacle. You see some pretty yeah. crazy, some pretty crazy, some pretty yeah, crazy it, it, things we, going on. We would never, we would, well, if you'd asked us five years ago, Marianne Moser and me, asked us five years ago what we would see Beakerhead in September 2018 to be like. And we'd have some, we'd wave our arms and have some vague sense, <laughs> but I don't think we had any idea. And I'm not saying that it has grown uncontrollably and we just couldn't imagine it. We thought we had a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean, you know, there are a lot of good ideas out there that never become anything more than a good idea. But we worked... We consulted a lot, actually, and we worked a lot, and we got to know a lot of people before we ever thought of actually launching it. And um, so we had a pretty good idea that if you could do this, this, and this, if you could offer people or you give people an opportunity to have lunch in a completely dark room where you literally can't see anything, yeah. and there's a neuroscientist there explaining how you're feeling, that kind of opportunity doesn't come up very much, and that's what Beakerhead's all about. Yeah, it is a totally unique um, set of installations and stuff that I, th I think yeah. you'll see. Um, do you think it's something that, you know, like what, 
is it something to unique to Calgary that makes it work or could you imagine it in other places? Is it uh, just take good, the right individuals? You know, I, I think there are probably medium sized cities, you know, first in a city like Toronto or Vancouver, I just think I suspect the heavy lifting that you'd have to do even to bring something like that to life might be quite a bit more daunting than it was here. Mm-hmm. It was pretty hard here too. Yeah. And it's, it's not easy to keep it rolling once you get it rolling either. It's, your work is never done, basically. Yeah. Um, sorry, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, yeah, anyway, we think we're on the right track. Um, one of the really important things about Beakerhead is that we are involving the art artistic community mm-hmm. more and more each year. And we have projects where an architect, an engineer, and an artist will collaborate. Mm-hmm. We love that. Uh, we have um, opportunities for people to be at the Banff Center. Um, so it's really, it's not just tacking a little bit of art onto the end of a piece of science and calling that a collaboration. Yeah. That's not a collaboration. Yeah. And you're not really going to achieve much if people are just um, thinking, well, we've got to have some art in this, so let's sing it instead of say it well, right the you know, sort that may of or may not work bare bones how do we yeah no for sure so uh, we're trying to do that yeah it's interesting and i know it's one of those things again that maybe even the science community forgets how much creativity is involved in science and how those two it seems like a nice mix that you don't think of at the be you know you wouldn't naturally jump to but creativity artistic you know uh, talent with with scientific themes or topics yeah. is it's, it's it a big always, space doesn't always work sure but uh, sometimes it works really really well Man. so um uh it's a kick to see that kind of stuff come to life so do you find i mean this is just my own personal um you know i come from a biology background um, so science communication, it seems to me, tends to really go uh, physics, space, heavy, engineering and stuff. So do you find like certain topics obviously lend themselves better to this kind of thing? Biology being one that doesn't? To Beakerhead? Yeah, or to these sorts of, you know, maybe creative expressions of, of science or science communication in general or even the public interest. I don't think it's, um, if you're asking me if I think it's hard to bring, say, biology into this, Mm -hmm. um, no, it isn't. And uh, the thing you can do on top of bringing biology in it is to bring some um, psychology in it as well. And so the the event I just mentioned, the lunch without light in a a totally dark room, um, the experimental animals, if you will, are the people. And they're experiencing... They're experiencing this cool brain stuff going on. So um, that's a good example where it's not chemistry, physics, uh, and it's not just science either. It's person, a personal. It's emotional field. experience. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that really adds a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I just think you, you see so much science outreach stuff is just, it's space, it's technology, and I guess people think that that's, what the public wants to consume, but yeah, but it really is different audiences. I mean, there, sure, there are some polymaths who will read every physics article, every chemistry article, every psychology, whatever. Yeah, but most people will target some area, mm-hmm. and indeed, there are writers to supply that area, like right. what you're doing. Um, so that works. It's just important to remember there are many such audiences. You know, Scientific American. 
I guess it's only online now. Um, anyway, the print version, eh? Uh, the the version that I'm familiar with was, okay. had a diversity of articles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there would always usually be some anthropology, some cosmology or space subject, um, some sort of animal behavior, a chemistry one, and you know a really good mix. And I'm sure that it would be true that people would read three out of seven mm-hmm. or something, and they would be they would end up uh, over time being pretty predictable. This yeah. person does not read the space stuff. But still, there was enough of general interest that uh, it did well. But I think the audience is a bit more fragmented now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's your, what are you consuming in science topics these days? Do you, you know, what's, what's got you going? What are you reading? Um, I'm interested in Alzheimer's disease. And more broadly than that, um, the biology of aging and more narrow than that do we actually know what the lifespan of a human is because there's some ambiguity about that um so biology of aging generally so the oldest person ever was a french woman uh marie calmont and she was 122 plus when she died that was in 1997 and nobody's done better than that 122, okay. Yeah, and a couple of people just this past year have died at 117. So one of the questions is, um, what does Marie Calment represent mm-hmm. at 122? Is that such an outlier that will rarely, one day we might see another one, but, you know, unpredictably. Right. Um, or... Is she just the leading edge? And as more and more people become hundred year a hundred year old, more there'll be more slop, statistical slop into the teens, and then <laughs> you know eventually reach that. Well, yeah. nobody really knows the answer. It's contentious because the problem is Calmont's really one data point, apart from a pretty dense cluster at one hundred and seventeen and less, mm-hmm. which is amazing in itself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that there could be a lot of people who are one hundred and fourteen years old. Yeah. But I, so what it would, I mean, I think my first reaction to people living that long is that they must have received a lot of medical intervention to keep them alive. Yeah, not and all of them do though. That's not all of it. them do. Yeah, I'm sure. And so then I guess when you mentioned, you know, like what is the natural lifespan of a human, my again, gut reaction is like, oh, well, we're, we're surpassing what our bodies were evolved to do. Well, that's true in a sense. Uh, like, you know, the mismatch between what and how much we eat and how much we exercise. Mm-hmm. And if you go back a couple of million years or even 150,000 years, um, people were on the move a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't gorging themselves on sugar-rich food, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure how different, uh, but isn't there also the thought that, or the fact, I don't know if it's a fact, um, that it's possible that because of the way, you know, 150,000 years ago, the lifestyle that you were doing was a lot more dangerous. So maybe they never even saw the the full lifespan of a human because they died before they could even get that chance. And so that effect has lasted until quite recently. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, yes, uh, so-called stone age people would be would succumb to injury and infection infection in yeah. a way that we wouldn't but people died of infections in 1920 too yeah know, 20 also 
So uh, it really wasn't until the 40s with the discovery of penicillin earlier that things started to happen. And childhood or uh, maternal mortality at birth used to be really high. Mm -hmm. Now it's treated effectively. So lots of things, there has been better intervention to lower blood pressure and prevent heart attack. Um, So you could, what happens if you eliminate heart attacks? You know, does everyone get Alzheimer's? Yeah. I mean, these 114-year-olds don't have it. Right. Because... They wouldn't have made it that far. They wouldn't have gone that far. So it's an interesting issue. And then there are people who believe, uh, from the chemistry point of view, that there are maybe a few systems in the body that need to be interfered with in some way uh, so as not to... uh, Become, not, not to be as prominent an actor in the whole aging process. There's a guy who says there's seven pathways, and if you could interrupt them all, you wouldn't age. At all. At all. And there's another, uh, there are two people in Silicon Valley that are leading a big charge to live forever. It's fascinating, actually. But it, it, it just seems so counterintuitive, and maybe it's just because it's, I, you know, it's just the way that it's always been, but you're with the passage of time, you accumulate wear and tear. Oh, yes, but the idea would be to intervene before you really start to feel that. But is uh, this So then... Ray Kurzweil sees a time in the future where uh, there'll be little nanobots fl- flowing through your body, correcting stuff as you go, yeah. en route, so to speak, and um, just be so efficient that, in fact, you might age, but it might take hundreds of years, not right. just a hundred but so then it's like without that intervention, though, there is a limit to what a human body can. Because you yes, said these but, seven but systems. still nobody really knows what that. Li- I mean, we're intervening already. Right. So w- what do you call the natural lifespan? If nobody else lives to 122, then the idea that it's probably centered around 118 or mm-hmm. thereabouts. <clears throat> 115 has been suggested. Um not enough data yet, though. Yeah, that's it's an interesting it's an interesting topic, and then it like you kind of like you alluded to a little bit leads to the Alzheimer's. Is if you keep the body, you know, the blood, the heart, everything, the muscles sort of going, what 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 of the brain? How does the brain age? And I don't know a lot about brain science, um, but I imagine that it doesn't age in the same way that muscles and other tissue do. If you're one of these optimists, you'll just, you could argue that, of course, we would never advocate uh, a longer lifespan if the risk of Alzheimer's were the same as it is now. Mm-hmm. And right now, if you, if you sort of do an artificial kind of extrapolation of, uh, if people, um, um, some people get Alzheimer's in their 80s, mm-hmm. some never get it mm-hmm. uh, in their entire life. But the longer you live, the more likely it is that you have it. Yeah. So if, if humans, at the cur- in the current situation, if humans live to 140, every single one would have Alzheimer's. Yeah. If you wait long enough, you'll get it, basically. So you. obviously the proponents would just say, well, not only would we never risk that, but the root of Alzheimer's, there are chemical processes. And indeed, some of the anti-Alzheimer's drugs that haven't yet proven to be very effective... Um, are based on interrupting chemical pathways. 
in, uh, preventing enzymic cleavage of mm. a particular site, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. It hasn't been shown to be super effective yet, but you could easily see in 20 years there would be a way. Mm -hmm. So you could people's brains would stay, you know, 35, 40-ish. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, some people might want to stay 22. I don't know. Well, man. Brain's fast then. Yeah. <laughs> it's perpetually 22. I, I feel like how much I, looking back at that age and seeing how much I didn't know, I don't know if I could stay that age forever. Uh, but is the leading sort of thought about Alzheimer's, it's, it's protein buildup. It's like... Yeah. Amyloid. Amyloid, yeah. Uh, A-beta. <clears throat> and um, A-beta comes from an incorrect um, enzymic cleavage in, I think, two or three places of an um, amyloid precursor protein. Right. And I think it's actually in the cell membrane when it's cleaved. Anyway, if it's done incorrectly, a small piece results. That small piece, A-beta, uh, sort of clamp to other pieces of A-beta, and they form fibrils quite easily clumps of this and then fibrils clump together to form plaques and uh, plaques start to build up uh, midlife in many people um, but it's only when they reach a certain level that uh, apparently another chemical runaway molecule called tau starts to accumulate the exact relationship between the two isn't known mm -hmm. <clears throat> when tau starts to rise memory loss starts to increase and yeah, so the amyloid looks like it kicks the whole thing off. Right. So most drugs that have been tried so far have attempted to prevent this inaccurate cleavage or if a, a plaque is already formed, destroy it. Right. There are some people who argue that that's actually a bad idea because the plaques are simply a kind of trap for um, amyloid beta molecules and as long as they're in the plaque they're not free to go to the synapse and do something there mm -hmm. but nobody really knows yeah most people think it's you, plaque sort of correlates with the eventual uh, degree of damage so the idea be like there might be a, a, a an actual use for this plaque the body yeah yeah it might be doing the cell some good rather yeah. than some ill and then it's just then this sort of if it reaches a threshold or it's a runaway thing so you'd yeah, interesting. But so some of the drugs that have been tried have succeeded in reducing plaque and A-beta levels, but have not succeeded, except with very faint hints, in preventing dementia. Hmm. So the goal, it's kind of ironic, the goal was reduce plaque. Yeah. The result? Satisfied. Reduce plaque. Oh, unfortunately, everybody still has Alzheimer's. Huh. That's really what it was. So it didn't. Yeah. So now the general feeling is got to start earlier. Plaque starts to build up earlier. Got to hit these things before they become plaque. Right. That's when they're still active. Hit them before they're active. Hmm. This might be, I don't know if it might be stretch your knowledge on it, but it, Alzheimer's always makes me think of prion disease. And in prion disease, it's a similar thing where you're building up protein in the brain. Um, but does Alzheimer's, when these plaques start forming do they know if it induces more because like a prion is a misfolding yeah. and so once one does it seems to set off a domino effect where they all start misforming and creating this plaque is it similar in alzheimer's or where you see like a um, an increase in the, progression the, or? the plaque in the number of plaques and the areas in which they are increase 
but it's not um, it's not quite sort of self triggering like prions. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know exactly how um, how much A beta you have to have in a cell before you see visible plaques. Uh, how many plaques does a cell? Um, the plaques actually though are outside the cell, so that's a bit misleading what I just said. But how those plaques aggregate from the the A beta and the cytoplasm, and how early you have to do something to stop that to actually have an effect on the ultimate risk of dementia. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not the plaque, maybe it's the secondary one, the tau. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in the end, because I will say there is one r- critical piece of evidence that if you track how uh, loss um, sort of incapacity of the brain spreads st- uh, in Alzheimer's starts in the hippocampus, the temporal lobe, and then spreads to the frontal lobe, and you get different behaviors affected, memory first, uh, planning, and so on, second, and so on. It's the spread of tau that reflects that exactly. So okay. you got memory loss, you look in the hippocampus, you find lots of tau. Uh, if you go a bit earlier, you don't see any memory loss. You might, you might see a few plaques, but you see all kinds of plaques up here, but they're not causing any apparent symptom. Hmm. At that point, so maybe it's tau that the so there are now some anti-tau drugs in early clinical trial. I think. Hmm. And do you know what the research on sleep and Alzheimer's is? Because I've read just very few uh, pieces where you know one of the functions of sleep is to help clean out uh, cellular waste and things like this in the brain, and that sleep. I think it was the thing I read and I, I out on a limb here, so I could be totally wrong, but there was, it was, there was a predictive, uh, element to how much sleep you get and risk of yeah. Alzheimer's. There are at least animal experiments that show that, um, uh, a beta or, you know, um, that kind of plaque and fibril material is reduced in the cell. Um, if you do that, if sleep is normal. So mm-hmm. it's during, I think, even certain phases of sleep uh, where you get this material expelled. Um, I'm not sure what the human evidence is other okay. than maybe people reporting sleep difficulties uh, associated with this uh, eventual development of Alzheimer's. I don't know that literature, but in animals, there is does seem to be a correlation. If you have mice that are engineered to develop plaques, you deprive them of sleep. They show the signs, the buildup of amyloid and behavioral signs before other mice who had normal sleep. Hmm. Okay, so there might be, yeah, but it's, we don't know yet in humans. It's always good to get enough sleep, though, probably. Yeah, I mean, that's another, like, a hot topic inside of science stuff that I feel like is, is happening a lot now is is, is the, the sleep research, but, uh, yeah. Um. Well, we've been going for just about an hour, but I have to touch on one thing before okay. we kind of wrap it up. And it's, it's right here. I'm looking at a painting of our good friend, the Sasquatch, the Bigfoot. And we've had, we've had conversations in the past about Bigfoot. And I, I don't think either of us are going to sit here. We're not going to have the conversation of whether it's real or not. But you seem to have a lot of knowledge about what people who believe in Bigfoot what yeah, their read, evidence I've, is and I've read a lot of that stuff. Uh, what I, was your interest in it? Like what brought, I don't you know. To- I'm uh, ever since I was really, really starting to be a science person. I was also interested in lots of claims being made on the fringe 
for the existence of things like psychic powers. Right. Um, uh, crop circles in England. Yeah. Uh, those would mysteriously appear and they had to be aliens. UFOs, of course. Right. Um, <clears throat> Bigfoot is one of the uh, Loch Ness Monster, not, not nearly as interesting, I don't think. Uh, because Bigfoot, it's not as plausible? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bigfoot's uh, interesting because there are so many people that take it so, so seriously. Right. <clears throat> and um, I went to a meeting once at UBC, a two-day meeting where people went, all you know, went over and over the famous 1967 film and the Patterson produced footage? their own pardon the Patterson footage. Yeah, 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 yeah. The famous Patterson film, <laughs> um, and then uh, others. People had slideshows showing evidence that they'd found. There was a guy talking about Bigfoot vocalizations. I used to have them on tape. Nice, um, <clears throat> but I don't have them anymore, sadly. Um, anyway, the people were so serious that um, and. Some of them are very good storytellers. Oh, yeah. So they could um, they could uh, intrigue you with their take mm-hmm. on the evidence. Of the evidence, of course, is weak. Yeah. At best. At best. <laughs> yeah. But um, it but it has as probably every every faked evidence has. It has some commonalities that tend to give it this sheen of reality. Mm-hmm. You know, you find footprints in Northern California. You find footprints in BC anatomically they're very similar yeah. in ways that are different from human feet yeah has one guy told every other guy that's what i wonder them it'd yeah. be easy today but don't forget this was happening in the 60s yeah 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 so um, is there in your you know sort of looking into the field is there any piece that makes you even pause for a second and say well that's kind of interesting or that's, you know, cause I think with a lot of these things, UFOs, you know, telekinesis, big, Bigfoot, the, what I think gets people into it is that you can't totally disprove it. You know, you can't say, yeah. well, you don't know for certain, right? Like, and I mean, I don't know for certain, I'll be willing to admit that, especially with UFOs, you know, like the idea of life outside on the, it seems plausible, but there's no good evidence that it is. So you have to kind of run with the assumption that until I see really good evidence, but I think that's what really draws people in. So what's the, what do you think it, have you seen anything that makes you even pause for a second? With Bigfoot? Bigfoot or UFOs, or I don't know how much you've gone into any of these. uh... There's nothing that persuades me these things actually exist. Yeah. Um, There's a good example though in the Bigfoot story where there is a question and the question is who would do this <laughs> and uh, who would make a, up it, bigfoot it was a set of prints found near bossburg washington in 1969 quite a long like it might have even been a thousand footprints through okay. the woods yeah <clears throat> one of the feet was a normal bigfoot foot so um it has features unique to it the other one was the same thing only a club foot it was twisted and um dug into the soil in a different way so that's my question okay it's fake <laughs> let's say it's fake because they're all fake right yeah some guy i presume it's a guy it might not be <laughs> it's some guy usually says, a guy you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna lay down a thousand and thirty one bigfoot prints but i'm gonna make one a bigfoot club foot yeah i think that would be really cool yeah 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 it might lend some credence <laughs> so to here's the... the thing so if somebody did that 
the argument for its um, for the idea that it might be a real footprint is also centers around this mysterious guy because yeah. it says who would have the knowledge, <laughs> the anatomical knowledge, to create a <clears throat> an anatomically correct Bigfoot clubfoot. <laughs> That's not easy. Point taken. It's not easy, right? Yeah. Either that <clears throat> narrows down the search for the guy quite dramatically, <laughs> or it says something like the guy, whoever did it could have driven three hours to the University of Washington, Seattle campus, uh, gotten a anatom- you know, a semi-smart guy, anatomy book, make some drawings, do it. Yeah. One of the two is true. or maybe there's a third I don't know but so there are always stories that are intriguing but they're always like most stories of any kind uh, it's all about the people it's not about the evidence or the thing being discussed it's It's the storyteller who's who's arguing that yeah what's at stake for them I'm always interested in you know whether these people some of them I'm sure are in it to fool people and make a buck yep. doing it. Yep. But some seem to genuinely believe it to the oh, point yeah. that they will put their evidence under scrutiny, you know, with the chance of being wrong. Like I've seen, you know, several TV shows where it's, we're going to do, um, you know, um, genetic analysis on your hair sample that you found. Yeah. It's always a bear. It's always a raccoon. It's always a, yeah, you yeah. know, something, right? But these people will spin a yarn of I saw the thing and it was here and it ran away and I got a good, it looked at me straight in the eyes and it made the noise and I grabbed the hair right from this thing. So it has to be, it has to be it. It's like, you must know that when they test it, it's going to, it's not going to be that and that you're going to be exposed as. No, that person wouldn't know that though. They, so it's the same thing we were talking about earlier. People have points of view that, <clears throat> don't depend on the evidence. So her point of view is, yes, Bigfoot lives. Yeah. Yes, I encountered one. I'm absolutely sure this hair came from. I mean, they're they're a little bit delusional. So I don't I don't doubt that she believe she he or she believed it. Yeah, it's fascinating. It is. I just can't imagine going on TV and, <laughs> and facing that. So I don't know if I've ever been so certain in anything. That I would be, you know. Well, wait till you're delusional and it'll happen. <laughs> wait till the Alzheimer's starts <laughs> to set in. Well, Jay, thanks a lot for sitting down, taking the time uh, amidst your house repairs and everything else that you got on the go. What do you have on the go? I know you've published recently a book uh, in the last yeah. year or so, The Science of Why Squared. Yeah, yeah. so now The Science of Why uh, 3 or Cubed is coming out in November. These are like question and answer books. Some commonly asked questions, science questions, some maybe never before asked in quite that way. Um, so I've, you know, I've been lucky to have three of those in a row. I don't know if that will continue. I'm giving some talks. I'm working for Beakerhead, um, <clears throat> doing a little bit of writing. That's all. Okay. So I don't know if there's anything else. You playing music still? I see there's a guitar yeah, over the there. Band, there. I'm in a band that does science presentations. But that would be a whole other subject. So let's save that for next time. All right, we'll save it for next time. Is there anything you want to direct people to Beakerhead website or anything? I don't sure, know. Beaker, sure, uh, www.beakerhead.com. Um, 
That's about it, actually. That okay. would be a good place to start. And after September 23rd, I don't know when this is airing. Probably after Beakerhead. So Beakerhead's already happened, but there's a fantastic photo and video gallery up there to take a look at. Well, I would say it's just an interesting thing to look at, especially if you're inclined to think about science communication projects or yeah. Yeah. things that you could do for or sure. for next year or whenever it is. If you're in the Calgary area, it's a really great, it's a really great festival. Again, Jay, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to do this. You're welcome. Thanks. All right. Once again, I want to give my uh, utmost thanks to Jay Ingram for being here on this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, we'll be back with more of these long-form type um, episodes to grad for you in conversation. Uh, we'll also be back with our regular type episode. Um, thank you again to the Freak Motif. You've been hearing the Swamp off of their new release, um, Hot Plate. So go and check that out, frkmtf.com. Big thanks always to Sebastian Abood for the logo. Any artwork you see on this is, is his handiwork. And you can check out his stuff at sebastianabood.com. That's A-B-B-O-U-D. All right, people. We'll see you next time. Take care.